Hey, it's Jim. It's time for another edition of the Lab Epstein Hitting Podcast. Before we get into episode number two, we've got exciting news. The podcast is now available on Apple Podcasts. It's available, as you probably know, on iPhone, HomePad, iPad, Apple CarPlay, and desktop via iTunes. You can also hear the podcast using Siri. Just say, hey, Siri, the podcast, the Lab Epstein Hitting. The podcast is also available on Google, Spotify, and our YouTube page with full episodes and clips from previous editions. Just go subscribe to The Lab Epstein Hitting. Thanks for listening. Thanks for the support. And be sure to look out for a new episode every Monday at 9 a.m. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the second episode of the Lab Epstein Hitting Podcast. I'm Jim, and joining me is my hitting mentor, former instructor, friend and co. That's gonna be your tagline, by the way. I just want to figure it out. And I've re- I've wrote it down. I've scripted it. So awesome. by the by the time we're into episode number eight hundred, I'm sure I'll memorize it by then. Jake <laughs> Epstein, my my renowned friend and hitting instructor. Jake, how we doing? We're doing very well this morning. How are you, Jim? Doing well. You know, I sampled that first episode with people around me. Uh, last week's episode and is available on Apple and Google Podcasts, and people seem to really take to it well. And I think we, we may be onto something here talking about hitting every single week. And that, new episodes drop every Monday at 9 a.m., by the way. I do. I got some great feedback, too, from, from uh, you know, the, the social media community out there and, and some of my clients. And uh, the one thing I need to do a better job of that they instructed me on was Hey, girls swing bats too. And uh, I don't want to forget my huge softball contingency that's out there because I have some really amazing players. One of them is, uh, I'm very excited since I'm talking about it, I'll continue to talk about it. Bailey Hemphill, shout out to her. So she's an All-American from University of Alabama. Last year was going to be her senior season. And, and it was it was very sad because I've seen her every Christmas break since, gee, she was probably... 12 years old, 11 years old. So we're going on like eight years, nine years in a row. And this was going to be our last, last winter. And so it was sad. We gave our hugs and it was like, Oh my gosh, what are we going to do next winter? And then obviously the outbreak uh, hit and uh, she was granted another year of eligibility. So I will get one more uh, winter training session with uh, quote unquote, my best friend, Bailey Hemphill. So I will do a better job of uh, using some, some softball terminology as well as we go through. Well, the saddest thing about this whole shutdown thing, too, at least on the college athletics side, is that every athlete, and you know this very well, that every athlete dies to deaths. And for some collegiate athletes who are going into the real world now, they already had to experience that athletic death, so to speak, but they did it in a way that was such under such a negative cloud that I'm glad to hear at least some good news that your student Haley yeah. is getting that opportunity to go back for her senior year. Yeah, and and, and it is the the NCAA has granted you know seniors and, and really everybody last year an extra year of eligibility. So that brings up a whole can of worms on the recruiting side and uh, managing uh, scholarships and, and all that. So that's a another topic for another day, but. Um, boy, you're right about, you know, your deaths. I, I had uh, two of them. I had uh, my college one. 
I remember losing in a regional to Mark Pryor, who was pretty darn good in college, and uh, just weeping in the locker room <laughs> when it was done. And then uh, a couple of days later, fortunately, I, I signed and I got to play pro baseball. And then, of course, that has to come to an end, too. So, yes, very uh, stark memories, even 20 years later, 18 years later. Well, we do appreciate everybody who did listen to that first episode. Leave a review. I listen. I'm being honest. I've never left a review. I listen. I don't know about you, Jake. I listen to podcasts in the car, on the way to work, the gym. So I've never decided to leave a review for anybody. But we would really appreciate it if you did that. And also, we'd really appreciate if you like the podcast and subscribe to get new episodes every Monday at 9 a.m., Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, some of the biggest podcast platforms in the world. Uh, we're also on Spotify, and we have our own YouTube page as well, YouTube.com. I wrote it down here, Jake. I write everything down. You know that. YouTube.com, the Lav Epstein Hitting Podcast. Like it for full episodes, which will be uploaded, and some clips from previous episodes as well. And like us, too, on social media, on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Jim Tara, and Jake is at Epstein Hitting. So, Let's get into our episode this week, week number two of the podcast. And uh, coming up, we're going to talk about the philosophy style absolutes, the similarities between them, maybe not so much, the differences, and we're also going to do an overall mechanical breakdown. Um, But I want to first pose a question to you, and I found this tweet last weekend, Jake, uh, that I've been really thinking about all week. I saved it, and I've been looking over it and thinking and then doing some film study, and I want to pose it to you. And the tweet, I'm not going to quote it verbatim, but the idea of it was a lot of the time you could take a big leaguer swing, Alex Bregman, Carlos Correa, whomever, Gary Sanchez, Gleyber Torres, and watch it side by side with their high school swing, and it's almost identical. So how true is that from where you sit? Pretty true. Uh, you know, we, we kind of have this DNA that we build in at a, at a young age and players that don't have certain absolutes, as you said it, they, they, they don't make, it. Um, you know, there's a time when we all get cut, you know, hopefully it's on our own terms, but that's not very, very likely when it comes to this game. Um, but, you know, there's there's certain catastrophic issues. I call them when I'm doing my, my scouting or I'm doing my my regular lessons that that need to be addressed. And if they're not addressed, usually by the age of 14 or so, that player doesn't make the high school team. Okay. So we're not going to see that player at the major league level. Um, And then sometimes they're, they're so, you know, far gone 10, 11 years old and nobody helped them. And their natural athleticism isn't above and beyond everyone else that all of a sudden they find another sport to play. So it is survival of the fittest as we go through. Um, A lot of times what you are seeing there though, is their style. You know, you're seeing how they follow through. You're seeing how they stride. You're seeing the rhythm of the stride. I recently saw Robinson Cano swing when he was like 16 years old. And it was the same smooth move, but his hands were in a different spot. You know, he had a different stance. um, But the smoothness and his follow through was very much the same. So it is kind of neat to see that DNA um, kind of build around the player. And you can definitely tell pitchers, I, I find it a little bit easier um, you know, if you saw somebody like a Greg Maddox or a uh, Dwight Gooden or a Kershaw when they were in high school, because the delivery, sure. right, kind of plays yeah. a part in that or, or the way they follow through, the way Maddox would kind of hop off the mound or hop into his fielding stance. Um, it is kind of fun. I, I, the last one I received, um, I, I actually, somebody sent me uh, Juan Soto when he was 16 or 15, probably, he was probably 15, 15 and a half. 
it was his scouting video and they were like, you know, how would you have graded him? You know, sure. if we were to sign this player, how would you have graded him? And I graded him out, you know, pretty high. Uh, obviously, he didn't have anything, you know, catastrophic with his swing. Um, what I noticed between that old swing and his new swing is that everything was a little bit more compact, actually, as he got older. And as our muscles get bigger and our muscles get stronger, we actually can control our body a little bit more. Um, sometimes sure. with, with young kids, they're so flexible that they, they over-rotate, you know, they, they, they're weak in their upper body and their lower body drives everything. And so they're, they're not proportioned or balanced when they swing. Um, that's really the only thing I really see with great hitters that were in high school versus when they're pros. Is everything's just tightened up a little bit. So you mentioned the flex, and you made a great point there. You mentioned flexibility in one of your videos on your Facebook page, Epstein Hitting, when you're doing a mechanical breakdown. You were talking about the young man. I don't know how old he was. It was the final video that you did, though, and he was uh, kind of a lanky kid, but you mentioned he was very flexible. He had this big leg kick. And a lot of times what I've noticed going back watching some high school videos this week of some big league hitters is that they don't have as big as – like Mike Trout, for example, didn't have as big a leg kick – or as big of a coil as he does now at the major league level. And obviously, that's we're going to talk about that later in the episode. That's more style and whatnot. Um, but is that the reason, you mentioned the, with the flexibility, is that the reason, because they're more flexible when they are younger and they're not as bulky, that they now incorporate the leg kick when they get to the major league or at least to the professional level? Or is that just more of a style thing that they're trying to get their timing down and um, they're attempting to gain more power and use their legs more? This is a really good good question because I address this uh, in depth at all my certification trainings um, yes. that I do with, with instructors around the country is, you know, why, and a lot of times it's, you know, why do smaller guys have big leg kicks? You know, why sure. does somebody like Altuve have a big leg kick? Shane Victorino uh, comes to mind for me back in yeah, the day, right. 10 years yeah, ago. You, yeah, yeah, you feel me good. Yeah. <laughs> I just like it because it's from Hawaii and I like to say Hawaii. Uh, yeah. But yeah, it's, you know, leg kick, if we, if we trace hitting a little bit over the last, we'll go 30 years or so, 25 years, we have the, uh, my favorite player, Jose Canseco, Hopefully, Jose Canseco is listening to this. Hopefully. I still have a life-size picture of him that my dad, uh, I was able to meet him when I was a kid. But he was my favorite guy growing up. Not to say he's, you know, the, the best human being out there. But I'll tell you what, I love that guy. Like, every day in wiffle ball, I was Jose Canseco. That's for sure. I had his stance down. But, um, you know, you had guys that were kind of big and strong, um, you know, in the in the late 90s and early 2000s. Um, so hitting was a little bit different, right? Like we were, we were physically more advanced. I think that's the best way to put it. We're physically more advanced then. And then all of a sudden there were all these rules and guidelines and testings that, that, that came, in, came into play. And now all of a sudden we, we may not have had that extra strength or those enhancements that we were, we were using. And so how do we get extra power? Well, we better get a little bit more momentum going into the swing. So then all of a sudden we had these giant leg kicks and big weight shifts come in from guys that were, instead of being 250 pounds, you know, they were, they were 210 pounds. If you date that back into the, the, uh, the mid, you know, the 1940s, 50s, 60s, right? Um, well, let's go more like 40s, 50s. Those guys had, you know, if you look at Ruth, right? If you look at those guys had big mantle, had a huge stride. 
He didn't, maybe didn't have a huge leg kick where it came up high, but he really had a big weight shift. If you look at Hank Aaron, if you look at Willie Mays, if you look at Roberto Clemente, these were guys that were 175, 180 pounds that needed Hank to Aaron build. Too. Hank Aaron, yeah, needed yeah. to build momentum, and so you saw a bigger weight shift there. So I think we're kind of going back to that where guys are having bigger weight shifts. You look at somebody like Bellinger, who's such a such a wonderful hitter, you know, and he starts straight up and down and then he gets athletic and, and he kind of gets into his natural position. So um, I, I feel that a lot of times maybe a high schooler will, will go from swinging an aluminum bat versus less competition. And we talked about this last week about, you know, releasing the barrel and learning how to hit with a wood bat. Um, and all of a sudden the ball doesn't do as much. And we also talked about major league baseball now being more of a risk reward type of game where we're, we're rewarding home runs and, we're not worried about strikeouts and we're, we're not worried, worried about, you know, ground balls, if you will. It's like, sure. you know, or fly, I should say fly balls. So it's a different game. It's, hey, let's put all our cards in one deck and, and let it rip. And if a big leg kick helps with that and helps us hit the ball harder and further and have a higher slugging percentage, then I think it's going to set in a little bit or for a little bit longer. So I wrote down uh, light kicks and smaller strides. We're going to get to that a little bit later on when we talk about the mechanics of a high-level hitter. So that was that was really good stuff. Let's dive into our topic, though, this week, Jake. And again, we're talking about philosophy, style, absolutes, and the mechanics of, of high-level hitters. And first thing, before we sort of peel back the onion, so to speak, and, and dive into all three, that's my crutch word today, dive, uh, we're going to... Talk about the sim. Let's talk a little bit about the similarities of philosophy, style, and absolutes, and then we'll sort of touch on how they're different. Because if I'm not mistaken, there are similarities, but there's certainly plenty of differences. You know, one of the 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 two glaring. You know, it's a little bit different now, but the two glaring differences of philosophy would be, uh, you know, linear hitting, if you will, and rotational hitting. So. Um, sure, Charlie Lau against right, right, and I, I think now is probably a really good time. I should probably post something like this, but the word rotational hitting. Um, so there was only linear hitting. You know, there was nothing called rotational hitting. It was just linear hitting. Then late nineties, my dad was you know, like I said, you know, he was mentoring with Ted Williams and blah blah blah. And Ted's like, you need to come out with a videotape. Okay, my dad's like, oh okay, I guess I'll come out with a videotape. <laughs> and so my dad. Uh, used the word rotational because it was kind of the opposite of linear and it was a marketing word. It wasn't a new type of hitting. It was hitting that's been going on since Sheila's Joe Jackson, but he needed a term to use. So he used the term rotational. That's where it was coined. It wasn't a new type of hitting is what everybody talks about. So um, I, I find that funny. There was this huge debate for 20 years, rotational, linear, blah, blah, blah. There really isn't any linear hitting anymore. But if you think about the absolutes and you go back to Charlie Lau's book, uh, I think it was the art of hitting 300 and George Brett's in it. And the pictures are just awful. Like, you know, nobody ever got into those positions, especially George Brett. But, you know, the idea behind what, what Charlie Lau was teaching was staying on plane as long as possible. Right. It sure. wasn't swinging down. It was staying on plane. If you shift all your way from your back leg to your front leg and you follow through one handed, your barrel will stay on plane longer. That was the idea for it, you know, and, the problem was, you know, my daddy played with Charlie and he said Charlie would just, you know, take BP and he would just hit these little soft line drives the other the other way. And sure. that was his style of hitting. And that's what he wanted to kind of teach everybody. And so my dad, you know, kind of coined the whole rotational thing, which was 
straight out of Williams' book in his mouth, which was stay on plane. You know, you have to create separation and torque, and you have to stay inside the ball. So the absolutes, it's funny, like the idea of staying on plane has been around for a really long time, both linear and rotational. But how we do that is is really the nuts and bolts of what, you know, how can we make adjustments? How can we create bat speed and power and stay on plane? Um, and, and really, those are the philosophies, you know, the more currently, I would say philosophies would be, you know, you have your, your major leaguers that are out there that are have experience and, and, and played the game for a long time and they know how to practice and they know how to prepare and then they know how hard it is to get into a batter's box and face somebody throwing 96 miles an hour and changing speeds. And then you have, you know, you can call it a younger generation, but I don't think it's really that much younger. A lot of them are, you know, which is data, data driven guys that are like, okay, we have to create as much batch as possible. We have to hit the ball on this angle. Our barrel has to be on this angle. And then you have guys that kind of take that to a new level. So we're trying to mesh um, what actually works in a yeah. live situation when pitchers are trying to get you out versus just having good data. And, and I can tell you from a recruiting standpoint from my, my time in college and then consulting with a lot of colleges before then, there are so many showcase players out there. So many guys that can hit a ball 100 miles an hour off the tee. So many guys that can run a 6-5-60. So many guys that can throw 90 from the outfield that are just not hitters. They have yeah. one swing. It's one speed. It's in one spot. And they never get out of fall baseball. And they were uh, number 10 on the perfect game uh, you know, ranking board. They yeah. were a top-level recruit. Sure. And uh, I don't know how many college coaches that I've talked to that have said, we have a lot of showcase players. And it's not – and I think that's the big difference between what the, what the you know, big leaguers, guys with big league experience are saying versus data people that are just concerned about you know, hit tracks data, blast data, all that kind of stuff. How do we combine those two? I think sure. that's the uh, that's the goal to make a great player. And and to be clear, you're not anti-data because if you go to your website, thelabbcs.com, you have plenty of data and statistical information. And by the way, you had – and we talked about this last week. When you were teaching me 10 years ago, you had that data that you were using to help better illustrate what I was doing with my swing. So you're not anti-data. But no, going back to what you – Going back to what you said about, you know, the hit tracks and the blast and showcase players, uh, it goes back to that tweet that I saw that we talked about earlier in the episode. That that uh, that scout, I'm not going to say who it is, but he always talks about looking for ball players instead of just showcase players. And a lot of times you mentioned it with with um, these coaches at the collegiate level saying we have a bunch of showcase players. Well, when you see that as a hitting instructor, what's your plan of attack to try to fix their style and their mechanics and their philosophy to help get them out of that showcase player type phase? Sure. So some people are good athletes and some some players are players. I mean, that's why you look and, and I, I feel awful that I can't remember his name. He was a second baseman. At Oregon State, you know, he was a first rounder. Nick, uh, Nick, Nick um, Mangrill. Mangrill. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, right. And I mean, this is a guy that the dude hits, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah. he's always hit. You know, he hit in high school. He probably hit when he was four years old. And he probably had a very similar swing, kind of a Marco Scudero kind of guy. Uh, Pedroia, would you say he's a, yeah, Pedroia, a good Yeah, Pedroia. Yeah, real similar. Yeah. 
And it's like, you know, he probably wasn't like the super duper uh, showcase guy because he wasn't, you know, six foot one and, you know, 190 pounds when he was 15 going to showcases. You know, I'm I'm sure he could still hit. So um, what I usually do is I'll I'll, it's usually a a mechanical issue with those guys, Um, meaning they 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 look they look good with numbers because you can cheat those numbers. And they're sure. good athletes, right? They're fast, they're strong, they can jump out of a gym, right? But then all of a sudden you you look at their mechanics and how their elbows and their hands work and how their shoulders work and their legs work, and you're like, okay, well, I see where the problem is. So for those guys, it's very difficult to train those players because they're old. And sure. like I said earlier, players with swing mechanical issues that are catastrophic would be like a bat drag a cast, sometimes a left arm or a front, I should say a front arm, a kinked left wrist is kind of a weird move. They have these moves and they, like I said, they don't play in high school. They get cut because they're not successful. Now all of a sudden you have a freak athlete who is fast, strong, right? And he's got a mechanical issue. Well, he can kind of get away with it, right? Because he's a good athlete and he's getting away with it because guys are throwing 75, you know, 85 miles an hour and the defense isn't that great, and they're beating out ground balls, or they're hitting fly balls that carry because they're strong. And then all of a sudden, they get to high-level competition, and they're exposed immediately. Their first day on SEC campus, or Pac-12 campus, or Big 12 campus, or some kind of, you know, higher, you know, or, or I should say Division One program where guys are going to throw upper 80s and 90s, all of a sudden, the, you know, they get two hits all fall. And it's like, yeah. oh, my gosh, what did, what did we do here? So um, those guys are hard to fix. I got a little off topic. Or, or a little long-winded here, but you know, it's it's harder to fix them because they're older and their muscle memory is more set in. And now all of a sudden we have to kind of break that. Yeah, Nick Mondragal, by the way, Mondragal, uh, of, the Chicago, yeah, yeah. of the Chicago White Sox. I just want to say his, uh, his name correctly. That's who we were referring to. By the way, I, I just want to bring up one point about him. I'm glad you brought him up. Um, I love, we talked about this last week, I love good barrel control doesn't he have some of the best barrel control that you saw in the draft a couple of years ago yeah i mean he'd take you know if 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 there was a hole between first and second and you know they threw him up and in he would find a way to hit a a low line drive through that hole or a ground ball through that hole and and that's just i mean that's a, a guy that's very talented and sees the ball well and has control over his body but it's a kid that worked on all those things i saw yeah. something you know with your blue jays right with with uh, Bo Bichette, and I love Dante Bichette. By the way, he's one of my favorite dudes to to kind of follow. And you know, on, yes. uh, you know, good man, yes, yeah, good family. Yeah, yeah. He's just a good guy, and yeah, you know, he was a Rockies, you know, hitting coach and player for a long time while I've been there. But anyway, getting back to his boy, uh, Bo, and, and he was working on. Uh, okay, I'm going to put this ball up and in, and I'm going to be late on it. And he's working off a tee, right? It's not perfect timing, and he's going to find a way to hit it up the middle. Right, like two strikes. I'm looking off speed. Oh my god, he threw 90 up and in. I got to find a way to fight it off. Or this ball's you know low and in, and I'm late on it, and I got to find a way to hit it up the middle. I'm not just turning and burning. So, you know, that kind of barrel control makes hitters. And what does it stem from? Like the Pepper Revolution, right? Hashtag Pepper Revolution. Let's bring it back. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, well, I'm glad you brought up Bo too because I think that what you're referring to is the MLB Network clip. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that he was talking with Cliff Floyd about. I, 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 is that correct? He was talking about certain T angles that he uses in the batting cage. I don't know. I'm pretty sure that's what you're referring yeah, to. It could be because I look at their MLB network stuff all the time. Well, I, I remember uh, just getting a little bit off topic. I saw Cliff 
um, Cliff Floyd that day. And I, I remember I went up to him and him and I were, were talking. We knew each other from previous years. And I said to him, you know, saw you with Bo there. I think he's going to win a batting title one day. And he gave me a big smile, shook my hand and said, all right. All right. So, (laughs) so what, what is your, I'm sure we can break down Bo Bichette, you know, in in later episodes. I'd love to do that. He's one of the guys though, who I've watched closely, obviously for obvious reasons, um, over the past couple of years. And he, his barrel control, it's hard to put into words, but I'm going to try to here. The way he controls his bat, it just looks like he can, like you mentioned, play pepper and just serve the baseball if it's an outside pitch on the black of the plate and go the other way to right field. And he does it so easily. I That, to me, is such a special skill that makes you one of the attributes that makes you a high-level hitter. And, and that's you know can trace back to how do we prepare, right? You know, we talked a little bit about how do you get that, that, that quote-unquote showcase player to all yeah. of a sudden, you know, uh, be a dude when when the white lines come on. I mean, I, I there are so many players that don't look good in a uniform that look yeah. great between the white lines, right? And um, you know, having to create an environment to train that is competitive for those guys, where they're not just gonna because eventually you put the you know you put the hack attack on ninety two and they're gonna swing and miss like the first fifteen times. Yeah. And then all of a sudden they figure out their timing because they're good athletes. And even if their contact window is only four inches, all of a sudden, boom, 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 they'll start to get it. But if you only yeah. give them one at bat, if you give them three or four pitches to hit and you're recording uh, statistics on that, you know, if you're using the hit tracks for the, the, the right reasons, right, to collect data on that player, um, where does he hit it? Where is his go zone? Where is his highest exit velocity? Where is his average contact location on different uh, you know, pitch locations? If you're using it for that and not, hey, let's try to hit this ball at 40 degrees off a tee and see how far it goes. That's how we get those players to compete. So when they get between the white lines, it's not all of a sudden, it's not all of a sudden crazy. So the first step is with anything, mechanics. If you have a catastrophic issue in your swing, you're not going to be successful, okay? Mm -hmm. Like people say, Hunter Pence, that's the ugliest looking swing, whatever. You break his swing down mechanically, it's not awful. Like he he might have a little bad drag, but his barrel is on on plane for a really long time. And he's strong and he's athletic. He's not smooth, but he would have been a guy that if he couldn't control his barrel, if his bad drag, if he wasn't strong, if he was – Instead of having a back the size of, you know, long, you know, if he was like <laughs> 175 pounds and five foot ten, he he wouldn't have a chance to control the bat. Okay. So I always tell tell even the guys that I report to, I say, look, they may have a mechanical issue, but if they're strong enough to control the barrel, then they're okay. And what I mean by that is if you have uh, if your back elbow is out of sequence, if it goes too soon before your your top hand, okay. So if it folds underneath too soon then what does that cause? That causes a swing issue. It causes a barrel issue. causes a dump and the barrel going underneath the pitch plane, okay? But if you have that catastrophic issue, if you have bad drag, but your barrel does not go under that pitch plane, sure. okay, you can get away with it. And that's kind of how I do my, my reports is how severe are those issues if they have any. I'm going to put you on the spot here. Outside of Hunter Pence, who else has an ugly swing that you see in real time but at the major league level or even at the minor league level that you've seen 
or uh, um, even college, but who has that ugly type swing in, in to the naked eye in real time that when you break it down mechanically, you say to yourself, oh, well, shoot, they're, they're pretty solid. No wonder, no wonder they can hit at a high level. Yeah, you did put me on the spot. Um, <laughs> Hunter Pence. <laughs> um, that's uh, Denard Span was one of them back okay. in the day. I wasn't a big Denard Span fan, um, but that but that was his role, you know. I was never a Brett Gardner fan. Okay, like most people said, oh, it's kind of kind of weird, you know. He just kind of flicks that right arm, you know, as he finishes. But when you put him on video, he he's actually always had a pretty flat swing. So what I mean by that would be, um, if if the pitch is coming in at say four or five degrees, mm-hmm. he would swing it like two, one or two degrees. Sure. And last year or the last two years, he swung up a little more. So he still has a flat swing, meaning zero would be ultra flat and twenty would be really steep. Right. Zero zero's going? flat to the ground. Level to the ground, yes. Okay. And then That's 20 would be 20 degrees, you know, going up from the ground. Um, but he's always been in that low range, but he was, he's still low, but he's high, he's higher low. He's like six degrees now instead of one or two. So he was a guy that people would be like, oh, he's a real, and if you watch him when he came up, he hit more hard ground balls to the second baseman, mm-hmm. not rollover ground balls either, like, you know, like a squared up ground ball to the second baseman because he was a chopper and he was so fast. And I'll tell you what, he's really grown into a, a really, I mean, he's, he's not young anymore, but his swing evolved. That would be a really fun, you know, to find him his first three years or two years as a hitter and then compare him to last year. Um, that would be kind of a fun model. But, you know, looking at other guys, there, there are guys, but it's like they haven't stayed in the big leagues. Like there was a guy with the Rockies last year, but I can't remember his name because he, he was only up for a little bit. Anyway, I'll have to do some research on that one. Anybody on, on, on top of your head and I can. Well, you know, I, I look at certain things where, for I'll give you an example, I guess, someone who has an, a kind of, to me, in the in real time, and this is, this people are going to go nuts hearing this, but he is, if you look at it from the open side, mechanically, he's pretty, pretty solid. Although I think his swing plane is a little too flat. It's Trey Turner. I mean, I think if you uh-huh. look at his swing, right, everything seems to be very rushed from the leg kick to uh, the body. Just I always look, and, and uh, we talked about this last week. We've talked about this on the phone. I look for at a hitter from the ground up, and I, I sort of look at um, this imaginary line, which your dad taught me, right through their body. And you, you rotate around that imaginary line. It starts, obviously, from the ground up. And I look at Trey Turner, and everything seems very rushed. But when you watch him from the open side, which we had a chance to do during the postseason a lot, and watch that that swing when he squares one up although right. the bat although the right. bat's a little flat to the ground he still has pretty pretty solid I, I would say above average more than solid mechanics totally agree yeah uh, Trey Turner's a, a guy that um, isn't huge right um, yeah. and he plays you know he plays a very difficult position but uh, mechanically he's very very He's, he's above average and he's he's very textbook and yes he rushes so yeah. that rush and timing plays such a big factor in everything um and then the last thing with turner would be he is flat so he would be in that kind of that brett gardner now he's steeper than gardner was 
but sure. he, he is more of a flat guy, so he has to sit down and use his legs a little more. Um, the last guy I was thinking of was Jock Peterson. So Jock yeah. Peterson kind of looks like he's all over the place, right? He's sure. got this yeah. long follow-through, and sometimes he falls down when he hits. Yeah. Um, that dude controls the barrel really well, too. Like, it's no joke when he hits balls really far and, and, and on a line because his barrel stays on plane for a long time. He doesn't have any hand manipulation. And he, he sells out pretty good with his lower half. Like, he rotates really hard. What's hand manipulation mean? Uh, some, so it's, it's very similar to golf. If we get stuck in our golf swing, um, if we do something incorrect earlier in our swing, we have to correct it with the last, uh, the, the last piece of our body connected to the bat. So what we'll do is we'll usually flip our hands. So if a player uh, drops the barrel, dumps their barrel early, and they're underneath the pitch plane, the only thing to save the swing is to flip the top hand. And if you flip the top hand and you time it right, you're golden. There's like a maybe a 4% chance of saving the swing there. But a lot of times what you do is you flip the top hand, and even though you're swinging up a lot, now you're swinging up too much, you hit the top of the ball and hit a pull-side ground ball. So guys that, I mean, that's why the shift was invented, for guys that manipulate their top hand. Um, and they don't keep it, you know, you go back to Tony Gwynn, he, he said two things about hitting. I don't know if we talked about this last week. I think we did. He said, get to a good hitting position. Never really defined what that was, by the way. Just, hey, get to a good hitting position. Right. What the heck is that? And be, <laughs> yeah. palm up and be palm up, palm down in contact. Those were his two things. It's all he preached all the time is, you know, even when he was a coach at San Diego State. So um, that player would be palm up at contact for a very short amount of time because they're flipping their wrist. So that's the hand manipulation move. It's to save the swing so we don't swing under a pitch or we don't foul it back. I've noticed that former big leaguers, and I think this is why hitting Twitter has gotten so crazy. Uh, we're going to talk about Tony Gwynn, and we're going to do a mechanical breakdown of him in future episodes. But big leaguers, when they talk like what you just said uh, of getting to a good hitting position, okay, well, we're not saying you don't know what you're talking about, or we don't know your swing, obviously. You're one of the best hitters of all time. But what exactly does that mean? And it seems like sometimes, not always, you mentioned Dante Bichette. He doesn't do this. But it seems like sometimes those big league hitters, because they were so good and so talented, they can't seem to – It goes, I guess it just goes back to that old rule. When you're so good at something, it's you can't teach it. And I, sometimes they – teach it but they don't elaborate on certain aspects of it like you mentioned with tony gwynn right there yeah and i mean i can tell you what a good hitting position is of course um, and, and 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 on time what does on time really mean what is what is getting your foot down early mean or getting it right down and that's on something time? that's something that that's been oftentimes misconstrued horribly right. and i'm sure that was big when you were probably in high school like get your foot down early like before the pitcher lets go of the ball you know right. that that was kind of that may have been a little before you but um, yeah, I, I, I bring, it, it kind of reminds me, you know, what you said, you know, the big leaguers know how to hit, right? Um, yeah. my dad, this was, it was funny. My kid was just on a personal note. She's kind of a, a shoe freak. Like she loves shoes. My nine-year-old, it's like the worst habit in the world. Yeah. And she's like, did you have any cool shoes growing up? I'm like, yeah, my favorite shoes were Bo Jackson shoes. <laughs> She's like, who's Bo Jackson? And then my wife like sent her a, a picture of me and Bo Jackson. I didn't even know I had it. It was me and it was an old timers game, you know, and Bo Jackson, the Royals were playing that night after the old timers game. My dad was in. So I'm sitting with Bo Jackson. It was really cool. Anyway, uh, this was a different old timers game in Yankee Stadium. My dad played in 
and it was the 50th anniversary to Roger Maris's um, speech, The Unluckiest sure. Man. Sure. And so they're sitting there, and, and my dad's always asking people, right? So um, before the game, Joe DiMaggio comes up to my dad, and he says, hey, Mike, how are you doing? And I was like, good, hey, I'm doing great. How are you, Joe? And he says, good. He says, did you figure out the secret to hitting yet? <laughs> my dad says, no, Joe, I'm still working on it. And Joe said, look, Mike, you, you can either hit or you can't. Otherwise, there wouldn't be Joe DiMaggio and there wouldn't be Dom DiMaggio. And I'm like, that's the meanest thing to say about your brother, who was a big leaguer for crying out loud. But, you know, big leaguers, you know, that was their mindset is like, you can either hit or you can't. Right. right. You, you just you have those skills. Now, what we're able to do is prolong careers. You know, we're able sure. to say this kid was a good athlete when he was 10. He's got the wrong stuff. Naturally, in his DNA, he's got bad moves. We can fix those moves. And maybe he doesn't play in the big leagues, but maybe he gets to play in high school. Or maybe he gets to play. That's our goal is, you know, for, for my daughter that's nine years old and wants to play softball, I want her to play softball as long as she can. If I didn't sure. put the bat on her shoulder when she was seven years old, she would be a mess right now with bat drag and barrel drop like every other nine-year-old. But we were able to kind of get rid of that one move at an early age. And now it's like, okay, get big, strong, and, and, and uh, you know, love it. Get as many reps as you possibly can. So that's really our job as hitting instructors on, a, on an amateur level is, you know, play as long as you can. Give them the tools to succeed. And wherever their ability runs out, it runs out. And on a scouting standpoint or a, a professional standpoint, it's, you know, what, what are these guys doing that's going to hinder them? They're already pretty good and pretty great. What's going to hinder them? And, and then usually once guys are in the big leagues or guys are on the fast track, you know, they're already signed past the draft and past the international signing. It's, it's what you said. It's timing and rhythm and comfort. And then more importantly, you know, having a plan and the mental aspect. So, you know, it's, it's this beautiful transition. It's kind of like, um, I don't want to pick sides here on the, the world, but you have, I, I just remember my science book in school, you know, you had the, you had like the ape and then he started to get like a you stand up memory, stand up like 10 more percent in every picture. And yeah. then, you know, down the line, it was a man, right? Like, yeah, right. that's kind of, you know, the player, they start, you know, slowly getting better and better. And by the end of that cycle, now it's, it's nothing is mechanics. Nothing is mechanics. Everything is about having a plan and anticipating and, uh, you know, working on timing and rhythm. I don't know if you ever heard the story about Bill Belichick, but he actually, over the years, and what's made him such a successful coach, and one of the prerequisites for working for him, working for the Patriots, is that you have to learn his language. He's created his own language separate from what NFL scouts may use. And I have, I have instances in my life uh, professionally where I've kind of created my own language because it's easier for me to look at something and apply it and understand how to make something better, if that makes sense. And I think that's the case with, with big league hitters, that they have their own language. We mentioned going back to Tony Gwynn earlier about uh, time it up or whatever the case may be. And that's what separates the former big leaguers who really can't teach uh, to yourself, who was a professional player, but can teach. But also, too, they have their own language for the mental side, which is just as important with hitting a baseball as anything, as the mechanics as well. Yeah, I, I think so, too. And I think that's where, you know, you have these these young guys. And I don't, I don't care. I mean, my dad said it all the time. Like, do you have to, you know, would you go have open heart surgery with a doctor 
or would you have open heart surgery that somebody that already had three open heart surgeries? Like they don't have experience doing it. You know, experience is, you know, you can be a, a 14 year old hitting instructor if you know your stuff, right? right? If you know, if you've been trained and you've followed the right people and you've had mentors that teach you anything, you know, you, you can be a very quality, great hitting coach. If you mesh that with the experience of somebody that stood in a major league batter's box or woke up every day at six o'clock and went through spring training, you know, for 10 years and then, you know, 162 game season. If you can mesh those two, you're going to create like the most perfect environment. And that's why I've been successful. I've been around my dad, who was, you know, a a big leaguer. I've been around all his buddies that were big leaguers. And I kind of got that aspect. We watched a lot of baseball games. I played professionally, but I wasn't a big leaguer by any stretch of the imagination. I've been around the game for a long time. So my dad essentially has brainwashed me on all the mental stuff. So I haven't, I've, I've had that from experience, but in an A ball experience, not a major league experience. Okay. Um, but then I also have kind of the geeky mechanical stuff that I grew up with, you know, as an, as a young instructor, which I am not anymore. And now I can, you know, put myself in the old guy category. Yeah. In the uh, veteran category, right? Okay, I like veteran sounds much better. I like that better, too, you know, because, you you know, veteran, you don't really kind of put a number to an age. So there you go. <laughs> uh, but you made a great point there with, you know, I see this with, with the kids that are coming up now who had big league fathers, a, a Bo, a Vlad, a Kevin mm-hmm. Vigio. They understand what it's like to be in a clubhouse, how to, um, how to endure the rigors of a 140 when they were in the minors, now 160, well, not this year, but 162 game season over a long span. And that's just sort of goes back to anything in life, really. It's that wisdom, which is more important, I think, than just having the knowledge. It's so true. My dad said that, I used to say that all the time. You know, he said, you know, when Ken Griffey Jr. got to the big leagues, when Bonds and Bonds got to the big leagues, it's like they've been there since they were 10 years old. Right. You know, they exactly. lived in the clubhouse. They were exactly. always in the clubhouse. It wasn't a shock for them when they got brought up from Double A, right? It was like, oh, this is this is where I belong, and there is truth to that, and that's why most <laughs> players that aren't you know sons of, of major league you know stars, or, or even just guys that were you know in the in in the big leagues for five to ten years, you know, when they come up, they fail, and then they go back down to Triple A and they dominate, and they bring them up and they fail again, and then they go back down. And the third time, they're there. Charlie Blackman, my favorite example of that. You right. know, it was like this dude can mash. He gets to the big leagues and yeah, he tightens up a little bit, and then right. finally his third time up, he felt comfortable there. The guys knew him, and now all of a sudden, he's one of the best hitters in baseball, best players in baseball. I agree, and big big time contract as well. Let's move on to the mental side of the philosophy style and absolutes. Broad question here. For you as a teacher and as a major league evaluator, what's an abs- what, what's a mental absolute? Give me a couple of mental absolutes that oftentimes are overlooked. So a mental absolute, not a sure. mechanical absolute. Yeah, so, not a uh, physical mental absolute that you need that you need to be a successful high level hitter facing ninety five plus every day. Uh, relaxation. Mm-hmm. You have to be the guy that sometimes I can watch a guy walk from the on deck circle to home plate and have an idea of what kind of stress he's under. Um, How so do you, you see that? To, you can see that. You have to be stress-free. 
you can't worry what other people think about you. You can't worry about if you fail. Uh, Ken Revisa was, was a great, great man. He was our sports psychologist at Cal State Fullerton. He and Aggie Garrido started sports psychology for the most part, you know, when Garrido said, hey, I, I, I need something. And Revisa just happened to be a psychologist working at the at Cal State Fullerton University. So, um, you know, we got we I took his stress management class. He met with all our baseball people. I read his books. And it's you. You have to do that. When when they say in Bull Durham, you have to breathe through your eyelids, like the uh, whatever lizards of the Galapagos Islands, right? Yeah, it's true. You have to put yourself in this in this mindset where you're totally relaxed. My dad used to say, because he he grew up watching Mickey Mantle as a kid when he grew up in the Bronx, and his uncle would go to the Yankee games. And he said Mantle would just drag his bat up to home plate. He'd just come from the on-deck, start from the dugout, he'd take a couple swings, and he'd drag it all the way up to home plate. He'd take a couple waggles, and then, boom, he'd unload on the first pitch right that he saw. And it was like, that's the kind of player you have to be. And that is not an easy thing. That is a, a, a DNA thing. You know, That is something that um, is in there. Can you change that? You can work on changing that. Um, yeah. but you can't be, and then there's your Pence example, right? Your Hunter Pence, that dude is anything but relaxed, right? Yeah. He's like 40 cups of coffee a day kind of guy. Yeah. Right? I was just going to mention, and, right. Yeah. And it's I, like, I've become kind of like Hunter Pence <laughs> my, at, at age 30. <laughs> right. And, 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 and that's okay if you, you know, he, but he has to control it. He has to find a way to control it. Um, so I would say a mental absolute has to be relaxation, confidence in who you are. Um, you have to be able to stand at home plate and not care what people think about you. You know, um, one of my favorite guys at Mizzou, um, and, and he's a, he's a, a wild personality guy. He's a guy named Peter Zimmerman, who the dude, he hits, man. I mean, he is a professional hitter uh-huh. and he just, he just, people rag him. We went to Texas A&M. He got heckled in BP for crying out loud. Like everybody heckles this guy. And he embraces it. You know, he doesn't get up. He, he embraces it. And he uses that as fuel to dominate during the game. And then that's what you have to be able to do. You can't get upset about it. You can't get upset if you punch out, you know, you strike out. You always have another at bat. But you can't worry about what other people think. My dad used to say, you got to go to home plate with no clothes on, right, in front of 60,000 people. I think I may have said that last episode. Yep. And it's like, this is me. This is me, man. Let's go. Let's hit. This is all I got. And you have to be that comfortable to be a, a major league hitter. I wrote down um, I wrote down your uh, your point about um, being comfortable being heckled. And it brings me back to a story last year. One of our minor leaguers, I think he was in the top 25 prospects group last mm-hmm. year, but he was struggling a little bit in July and August. And he was friends with one of our uh, outfielders. And our outfielder, he was kind of a, you know, kind of a clown. So, he, you know, he <laughs> light up lighten the mood in the clubhouse. Well, we're in Bradenton, Florida last year. And I don't know if you've ever been to Bradenton or if you've been to the Pirates minor league facility, but it's a bandbox. It's very, very small. I, lo- I, I love standing on that field and just looking around and saying, my God, I could hit one out of here. <laughs> and, and, well, anyway, so this player was up and he kept hitting it to the warning track. And he kept hitting it to the warning track. To all parts of the field. And the kid, his name is Chavez, Chavez mm-hmm. Young, the outfielder, very athletic, very talented outfielder. He was screaming back at this 
prospect at this hitter in the batting cage the entire round he was saying no power no power the whole ballpark i mean he was screaming it over the the music right. well that night the kid goes out and hits his first home run of the year so this kind of <laughs> illustrate kind of illustrates your point right there and i bet you he got hotter than heck after that too you know it's like got the monkey off his back and now he feels like he belongs well, I actually, in fact, he had a pretty good week. I think he hit about 350 that week following. Yeah, so right. You're, yeah, you're exactly right. Um, mentally now with philosophy, what's your mental philosophy when you're teaching kids from 14 to college to pro? So it's it's somewhat different in um, younger, younger players. Um, I'm more on the aggressive side, so... Uh, I'm looking for at a younger age, I'm looking for a, so first of all, I start with mechanics and I'm teaching a swing that destroys mistakes. So I'll sure. bore you with a quick Paul Molitor story and hopefully keep me on track on this. So Paul Molitor, when he was, is one of my certification stories too. So all those guys listening are like, oh, here we go again. But anyway, Paul <laughs> Molitor was elected into the Hall of Fame. And one of the writers said, hey, Paul, you know, congratulations. Yada, yada. Why are you a Hall of Famer? You weren't very fast. You didn't hit very many home runs. Yeah. You weren't a very good defensive guy. I mean, you're all right, you, you know. And he says, you know what I – and then they get to the point where, oh, you had over 3,000 hits, right? And the dude could flat hit. So he said, you know what I never did? I never missed a mistake. If I got one mistake a game, hopefully I went one for four. If I got three mistakes a game, hopefully I went three for four. But you know what I didn't do? I didn't foul off that mistake. I didn't take that mistake. Okay. Sure. So if you go back, that's kind of my my mantra is I want to give you a swing that destroys and, and destroys like in BP, like nine out of 10, right? In a game, maybe six out of 10, five out of 10. This is your pitch. So from like the thighs, mid thighs to your belly button, mid thighs sure. to your belt, you don't miss that pitch because that's the pitch you're going to hit the furthest anyway. Okay. Sure. So you don't miss that pitch. That's the pitch you're hunting until that pitcher can show you that he can do something different, right? Like he can he can throw a 1-0 slider for a strike or he can throw an 0-0 changeup or he can... So I have them hunting. I have them with a mechanical mindset. And you know what? If you swing at an 0-0 slider because it started in your in your window and you missed it, okay, I'm fine with that. As so long as you're looking that, for it though, right? As long as, you're, as long as your approach is, well, you know what? I've, I've done my homework. I'm looking for a slider here. Well, no, no. If they get fooled, I just mean if they get fooled. Okay. So they, you know, they can't, the counts one and oh, the guy sure. threw a high fastball. He comes back and the guy's sitting on a, a fastball and the guy throws a one oh slider and that slider starts, you know, in the zone where it should, you know, and then it breaks out of the zone and they get fooled. Like, I'm okay if you get fooled. Okay. I'm, I'm okay. Like, not everybody can pick up spin as early as possible and, and maybe it was a good slider. And you know what? A one oh slider? Okay. Now, most players at a high level take that pitch because they can. They can see spin and they can see that ball comes out of a different window out of the hand. But I'm talking about sure. like a 14 year old. Yeah. Um, so that's my mindset is just destroy mistakes and have an aggressive mindset of that mistake, you know, uh, or in that zone. As we get older, now we're using kind of, you know, how we're how we're getting pitched. Right. Like what is what do we hit second in the lineup or do we hit fourth in the lineup? OK. Are you going to get more fastballs? Are you going to get more breaking pitches? How, how are you doing that this week? How are they pitching you this week? Everybody in the SEC, everybody in college baseball has a scouting report. Yeah. Right? This is what this guy, this is what we pitched him. How did, how did uh, Joe Smith do against you last week? He killed us. He killed us. He killed us. He killed us on fastballs. So pitch away from him. 
So now Joe Smith comes up the next weekend on Friday night, and the first 0-0 pitch is a changeup. The 1-0 pitch is a, a fastball five inches off the plate. Sure. The third pitch is a changeup right down the middle, but we're not looking for it, right, because we're looking for a fastball. So all of a sudden we go back and we talk through it. You know, I would talk through it with a hitter. Well, how did he pitch you? Okay, because that's how he's going to pitch you all weekend. Who's calling the pitch? Is the catcher? No. The pitching coach over there with five different charts that say, you know, how you did last weekend. Okay, here's what I want you to do. Look for the changeup on every pitch. Look mm -hmm. for a changeup up. We've worked on this in practice. And then all of a sudden, you know, here, first pitch, curveball in the dirt. Second pitch would normally be a fastball, right? It's a, it's a changeup right down the middle. I'm going to fool you. I'm just going to yeah. fool you with off-speed. I'm going to throw it for a strike, but I'm going to fool you. Boom, hang and changeup. Have a nice day. So that's kind of the, the as we get older mindset if you're hitting second and you're not a you're not a threat they're not going to walk you if the counts three and one you're going to get a fastball if the counts two and one you're going to get a fastball okay they're not going to pitch around you they're not going to want to put you on base so my my dad always used to tell me who's who's on deck if you're if you're going up to the plate who's on deck is he more of a threat than you more of a threat than you right now sure Okay. And maybe he's a better hitter, but he hasn't gotten a hit in two weeks. Yeah. Okay. So now you are not going to get fastballs in the zone, mm -hmm. you know, in, in, yeah. a, in an advantageous count. So yeah. again, that's, that's when there's trends going on, you know, if, if you're going into a, a, a new series or something, it is what it is, right? You're just going looking for fastballs or looking for your pitch, but you have to know that we had two guys at Mizzou last year that needed to be good breaking ball hitters. Mm -hmm. Because they had huge power, and they were yeah. they were our two threats. Well, they got two of changeups all year long, two one changeups all year long. Okay, and sometimes it was hard to convince them to swing at them. Right, and it would right. drive me crazy, and that's why I have so much gray in my beard now. It's because of <laughs> taking pitches when we had a plan. So brings up another topic. Stick to your plan. Yeah, a lot of players will get in there. Okay, I got my plan. I got my plan. Uh oh, what if he? And, and I'll give you this quote. I won't tell you which player it was last last year, but okay. I said, "Hey, what did he throw you? What was your pitch?" Oh man, he threw me. Uh, there was a left-handed hitter and a, and right-handed pitchers, right, or, or vice versa, opposite. Yeah, I got sure. I got four changeups and one fastball. Where were the changeups? Two of them were right down the middle. Did you swing at them? No, they were changeups. Okay, where was the fastball? Four inches off the plate. Okay. What was the best pitch you had to hit? Change-ups. Okay, next at bat, I want you to look for change-ups. Sure. Okay, coach, I got it. I'm looking for change-ups. So he goes up to the first pitch, change-up right down the middle, like belt high, he takes it. Oh, he God. looks in the dugout right at me. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> all right, stick with it. Anyway, a few pitches later, he ends up getting another change-up, right? Yeah. And then he swings it like a slider in the dirt or something like that and strikes out. He comes back in, I'm like, what are what happened to our plan? Like he had two great changeups and he's like, but coach, what if he throws me a fastball? And I'm and you're, like, you're not looking for that. I said, when was the last time you got a good fastball? To hit? Right. Right. It wasn't this series, you right. know, but that's, you have to trust your plan. You there's can't a, second get your guess yourself. There's a great quote. I read your, your book on uh, the mental part of hitting as well and how to think along with the pitcher. And we're going to do an episode on the mental approach and going more in depth with it um, in, in, in the future. But the, the great story that was, that was uh, portrayed in your book about, I think maybe your dad helped write it too, about a hitter, and I forget who it was, but he was up, he was ahead of the count 3-0. He got a fastball right down the middle, took it, strike one. Okay, he's still looking for the slider, I think it was. 
fastball on three and one right down the middle, took it. Okay, now it's three and two. Still looking for that slider, and I think he ended up getting a base hit because on that three-two pitch, he got the slider. He stuck with his plan. But that is, I, I think, especially for college hitters, high school hitters, so hard to stick so with that hard. plan. It because so you get hard. mentally, yeah, mentally in your head, things start to speed up and you start to they overthink. Do. And everybody's macho and nobody wants to get beat on a fastball. Sure. Yeah. You know, and I'm like, most big leaguers get beat on fast. Like most big leaguers like that I'll train and see, they're usually a little bit late. And I'm constantly like, hey, dial it up a little bit. Get going a little bit sooner. Get your bat head out in front. Where most amateurs, it's just the opposite. They're so afraid to miss a fastball and be late on a fastball that they're constantly, hey, you got to wait longer. You got to buy more time. You got to stride a little bit, you know. Yeah. And I, I, I don't know if that's how players internalize it. I don't know if that's how they see it, right? Is this a vision thing? Do big leaguers see the ball a little bit differently? Do they see it a little bit longer? Are their nerve connectors possibly delayed so they start a little later? I, I don't know the, the reason behind it, but I will tell you as a trend, major league players are typically late than they are early. And I think that's just so they're not as susceptible to off-speed pitches. So let's keep the uh, the show moving here. And before we do, I'm going to put you on. The, I mean, this, this that was great stuff. And, and we're really, uh, the show's flying by here. Uh, but I'm going to put you on the spot again. And I want you to tell me about oh, your... Your oh, tell me about your facility. Well, I gave you more examples now, so that he, he can't use them anymore. <laughs> tell me about your facility, the labbcs.com, which you can check out. Um, there's, I was looking at the website actually, Jake, the other day, and I, and first of all, the artwork is tremendous, and uh, it's very enticing for hitters from ages 10 to college and professional. So, what's going on? Tell me a little bit about uh, your website. Uh, the lab BCS and your facility there in College Station, Texas. Yeah, the facility is the best. So this was a a dream of mine was to create a facility that created hitters and not, not just, you know, guys that swung the bat. And, you know, through college and, and we, we talked at Mizzou last year, and unfortunately, uh, Sam Walton, didn't come through with you know enough money for us to to, to build a, a lab essentially at the University yeah. of Missouri, um, but it, it was it's been in the plan. Like this is how I want it set up. I want to train the vision part of it. I want to train velocity. I want to record every swing in there. You know, in terms of data. So every player that walks in has a blast sensor. Every swing is recorded. We have the hit tracks, which records everything after contact. We have the blast motion that. Uh, tracks what the bat is doing. We have something called My Swing, which is a golf and baseball three-dimensional sensor-based program, which which turns our body movements into an avatar so that we can see, essentially, it's 16 pieces. So every segment of your body, you know, elbow to hand, you know, hand itself, elbow to shoulder, torso hips, we can measure torque angles we can see where the stride is. So we're, that's telling us what the body is doing. So again, we're starting from scratch where we evaluate everyone. What are you doing now? Like what, what is your baseline? Where are we going to go? Let's create a plan. Your lower body works great. We're going to focus on your hand path. Your hand path is great. Your lower body doesn't create any energy. 
that's going to be your plan. So we start there. We start with mechanics. Um, it's kind of a CrossFit uh, layout, if you will, only with far less people. You know, we only have usually sure. about eight players in there, and we got eight thousand square feet. So everybody has their own station. You know, everybody's getting you two two hundred swings or so in there. In addition to training their body with some explosive movements, um, vision training, that that kind of stuff. So um, once we get the mechanics built in, now it's time to try to essentially get these hitters out. You know, we're we're trying to test them. We're 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 putting the machine. You know, if I have a high school group in there before the season, the machine's at ninety two, the sliders at eighty six, and uh, you know maybe we have a, a, another. You know, we have a change up speed, and they have to bounce from those cages. So instead of taking forty swings on fastballs and forty swings on sliders, they're taking three or four swings in each station and having to sure. make those adjustments on the fly. So that's what we're doing. That's you know you build you build from the the ground up, if you will. With they, we have to make sure the swing plane and the body's good. Otherwise, you're going to suck once you get into the ninety-two mile an hour fastballs. Um, and then and then we test them. So that's it. And, and we'll we'll do. We have groups for you know we have ten-year-old groups in there. I think we have a couple eight-year-olds actually. Ten-year-olds, uh, a bunch of high school classes. Um, you know, and, and this summer, obviously, we're closed right now, which is kind of a bummer. But um, you know, we're we're gonna kind of build in you know week-long programs where uh, college players can come in for a week. They can stay. They'll be able to hit every day. We have a field they can work out, take ground balls, uh, take live batting practice. So it's sure. a pretty fun environment there. My partner there, Rocky Billhart, built it. It was kind of a dream of his. Um, and, and I'm just lucky enough to share it with him. And and also, too, keep in mind that this is all applicable to softball players as well. Yeah. And we have uh, so we have three or four. Thank you, Jim. We have three. <laughs> we I have, got you, brother. I'm we here have for three uh, hack attack, like, you know, big time machines in there with auto feeders. We also have three softball. So we have we have baseball classes. We have softball classes, all those same same ages. And, and quite honestly, the softball girls are so much more fun to work with. They don't give me a hard time as much. You know, they do what they're told. They clean up. They work harder. Let that be a lesson to all you high school baseball players out there. Very good. So check out what package and what pricing fits you and your hitting needs. It's thelabbcs.com. Once again, that is thelabbcs.com. All right, let's move on with the show here, and let's talk about some mechanics and uh, what makes a hitter so successful mechanically and some of the absolutes and the style points we mentioned a couple earlier in the show for example the follow-through which follows the as you called it back in the day and taught me the power v the extension the stride that's a style but there's also some absolutes that you need to do to be a successful hitter so picture in your head those listening right now jake and i are doing it currently you're watching a game and you're seeing a hitter on replay from the open side right hand or left handed i've got carlos correa in that spot and you can have whomever hunter pence he's the hitter of the day so <laughs> Absolutely. So, so take that image and we'll start from how we look at hitters from the ground up and starting first with the feet, the stance, that's such an overlooked aspect of hitting. People are out there saying, well, you can start any way you want, or you have to start this way so you can get into your, your legs and your coil and your stride. Oh, it's, it's, it's unbelievable the amount of information that's out there. There's too much of it. Let's clarify from your perspective the stance. What is an absolute 
of a stance, or is it not an absolute? Is it just a style type thing? Uh, you have to have two legs and two arms. So that's that's right. my that's recommendation. That's that's absolute. the absolute for a yes. stance. So when I teach kids, very young kids, I saw. Uh, was it Eric Burns on Twitter the other day hit the bomb off his son in the driveway? It was so great. But I also watched him try to get his son out, who's probably like nine or ten years old, you know, and he's throwing nasty stuff to his kid. Um, but that's kind of where it starts, you know. That's where our stance starts as a kid. So, like, if I for a player Bellinger right now, like, what is that? Right. What is that? That's like his feet are together, and he's he has zero bend in his knees. Every high school coach would cut him upon seeing his his stance, right? Sure. Yeah. And then you have a guy like Pujols who was so spread out and squatty, and his back elbow was really high and whatever. So for me, stance has to be comfortable. We talked about how many players can get in the box and relax. Okay, that's where it starts. They have to be able to get into their rhythm, which comes out. You get into your stance, and then you have to be able to rock back and forth and move with the pitcher and move with rhythm. Uh, um, that's why we play a lot of Latin music really loud in the lab when we're training because I want guys to have some rhythm. I want to see some dancing. If they're a good dancer. They'll be a good hitter. So that that is my stance. Open stance. I, I, I will say no closed stances. I don't okay. have anybody with a closed stance. So the foot, the, so the the if you're right-handed, the left foot in front of the right. Correct, where the the front foot is closer to home plate. Really, there's nothing good with that, and that was big, right? I was at Mike Schmidt. He had that. I remember Joe Rudy. My dad used to talk about Joe Rudy. He had a big, big uh, closed stance. Um, Paul O'Neill too, a little bit more, I, I guess. Paul O'Neill, yeah. yeah. And I don't mind closing off. Like I find a lot of players stride. And they close off from yep. a square open stance. Um, most guys actually do a little bit. I would say the majority, maybe 60% of major leakers. Um, but, yeah, that's the only thing. Is a closed stance, there's only one thing to do, is that's to open up from a closed stance. Or you stay closed. And if you stay closed, then all of a sudden it's like, hmm, you're really blocking off the inside part of the plate. Now, why is the scissor a thing? Right? Why do so many players back foot move back? I mean, this this is a topic for another day, but why does it move back behind some guys? That's putting them in a closed stance because they strode closer to the plate. They dove towards the plate. That repositioned their hips towards the opposite field, so that back foot is going to slide to get in line with their hips. Anyway, that that that's that's why you see that now. Guys that probably had a closed stance got in the same position but because they didn't step to that position they were already in it you didn't see that back foot slide behind them as much um so yes stance has to be comfortable high hands low hands open stance square stance really doesn't matter to me unless it affects their timing in a certain way so some guys are really wide and they stride really late yeah. And they, they're late on everything. And, and because they're late, their sequencing's off. So I'm like, okay, now I'll make them narrow. Well, mm-hmm. if you stride late and you're really narrow, like Bellinger, you got no chance. Okay. So sometimes I'll yeah. go kind of opposite extreme. Sometimes I'll have a player that can't stride. Okay. Mm-hmm. Not usually a, a major league caliber player, but, you know, maybe I got a 12 year old that just is the worst strider ever. He can't, he strides, he bails out, he bails out, he bails out. Okay. So now we, we go to a no stride with him. I don't even have him 
pick up his whole foot. I'll have him pick up his heel, but I'll sure. have him, you know, hit from that position until we fix that problem and then we'll build it back in. You want when you were teaching me ten years ago, you told me that because I was stri- I was one of those guys striding in, and you mm-hmm. said, you know, if you stride a little bit more out or you stride even uh, out towards um, the outer line of the batter's box, it's not a terrible thing. So that's more, I guess, of a style and how that just is another example of there's really not, in this certain instance, a concrete way to even, and um, this is a good segue to the stride, a concrete way to stride and to get into your load. It's kind of dependent on the hitter. I agree. I, I think if you told Mickey Mantle, hey, I don't want you to stride that far, he yeah. would still stride that far. I think there's certain guys that just stride big, and I was yeah. somewhat one of them. I didn't have a big stride in that that it was high, but I always got really wide, and I had pretty long legs. And my dad would be like, hey, I need you to stride softer. I need you to stride shorter, and I couldn't, I couldn't do it, like physically, mentally, whatever it was. As soon as that pitch came at me, it was the same move. So I had to start a little bit wider so that my stride wasn't, you know, two feet. Um, so everybody kind of has that, you know, they have that feel of what they're striding. And if you get a player at a young age, you can adjust that. That's sure. the biggest thing though. When you see, you asked that question when we first started a kid that's a 15, say an international player or maybe an old, you know, a, an amateur player, you're, you're, you're going to draft in the scout, you know, and you see them between, you know, their, their high school age or that 15 age. And when they're 20 to 25, like you can tell it's the same kid, but the strides different. Usually the hands are in a different spot and the stride is different. Um, but that's about it. Usually the mechanics, which is the technique part of it, which I'm sure we'll get to here in a second. That's kind of what doesn't change. Yeah. I should have used the word technique more in this episode. Um, that, that's kind of technique and absolutes that yeah. sort of, they sort of go hand in hand on the topic of stride though, you see, and you're, you're, your size in terms of height, you're kind of Nelson Cruz's size and Nelson yeah. Cruz, he, he doesn't have that, obviously a big leg kick or a big stride. He steps and he would, you could make the argument. He's the type who, and I hate this. I absolutely loathe the get the foot down early, meaning we're going to get the foot down and then we're going to try to restart everything and swing from there. Okay. Good luck with that. That, that'll get you a big league league contract. Anthony Rendon does that too. But what they do is they keep the rhythm and the weight shift going forward to a certain point to where they can get into their torque position. But on the other side, on the flip side, we mentioned Shane Victorino, a smaller guy who has, you know, Chris Taylor in today's game, Mm -hmm. they've got a leg kick. They're kind of more on the smaller side of things. Is a leg kick better for the smaller guys who are my size, 5'10 to 6'1", in getting things going and getting into their legs more? Or is it really not a, again, is that more of a style rather than technique type deal? I think you can get some extra power that way. So we measured ground force reaction we had ground force reaction place at a, a place up in seattle we good buddy of mine and uh, we tested all kinds of different strides a no stride a long stride yeah diving opening up a back foot that squished the bug a back foot that came forward a back foot that came straight up off the ground instead of in and forward okay so we tested all those what was the best so we did get a stride, definitely had more ground force than a no stride. And what I mean by a no stride is not flat-footed. 
you're dropping your heel. So it's right. somewhat Rendon, but and Cruz, but they they do have a weight shift. They have more of a weight shift than what we were working on. So yeah. typically, it has to do with the player. Um, I like strides because big strides. Me, you're talking leg kicks, um, or no, not really. I'm talking. You're picking your foot off the ground and moving it forward. Okay. Or more. Okay. Right. So okay. that that would be a horizontal weight shift. Okay. okay. So horizontal versus a Donaldson that goes up. Sure. And then horizontal. Okay. I usually don't teach players to have a big leg kick unless they have really bad timing and rhythm. And then I'll give them one and say, try this for a couple of weeks and see if you like it. Okay. And then sometimes they love it, but at least it gets them going. Okay. okay. Um, I feel that a high leg kick, and I don't talk people out of it. I'm not one of those people that it's like, oh, you have a leg kick, you can't do that. Okay. Sure. I'll, I'll find a way to have them, if they're comfortable with it, we'll do it. But I want them to gain ground uh, towards the pitcher. So I want their hips to go forward. I want their foot to go forward. I want their chest to go forward. I want their head to go forward. Everything's going forward. Okay. And that once that heel plants, then everything starts to rotate around that axis. So if you think about this is kind of, and this could be good or bad, but think about the Volvo crash test, right? They you know, put the, yeah. put the dummies in, right? Sure. So you got the, you got two dummies in, you got a driver, he's got a seatbelt on, you got the dummy number passenger dummy. He has no seatbelt, right? He's just chilling. And all of a sudden here comes the, uh, the Volvo car. It's going down the, the track at uh, five miles an hour. It crashes into the barrier and the dummy without a seatbelt kind of just kind of falls forward, right? And then you do that same thing at 55 miles an hour, and now the dummy gets launched out of the vehicle, okay? So that's a, a weight shift analogy. The more movement you have going forward that you block and then turn into rotational velocity, the, the more energy you're going to have, far greater risk you're going to have too. So... Again, it has to do with the player and, and their, their makeup. As you can have risk, guys with big leg kicks typically are very good anticipators. Okay? They have to be. Sure. They have to have a plan. They have to, sure. you know what, I'm going to look for this, I'm going to look for that. Like, you can't get your leg to the top of the thing and be like, oh, is it going to be 95 or 80? You know, change up, I'm, I'm toast. Now, what people need to realize is, you know, the top of your stride happens right when the ball is released. Okay, so regardless sure. if you have a giant leg kick or you're just striding forward, typically when the ball is released, your foot is at its highest point. If it's not, we have an issue, and a mechanical issue will probably come from that because now all of a sudden you have to rush your swing. You have to do something with your shoulders or your arms or your hands before your lower body is in position. Okay, so that's something that, you know, timing can lead to bad mechanics sometimes. So. Too much on the stride, but I, I want a player to stride because I want them to have a stride that, you know, it's it's uh, fluid and dynamic. So sometimes that stride takes 0.25 seconds. Sometimes it takes 0.3 seconds. Sometimes it takes 0.35 seconds. They can control their feet. They can control their rhythm and their leg kick. If, for instance, say the, the, the guy that starts the game is throwing 90 miles an hour, Okay, we got our timing for 90. Now, all of a sudden, you know, Jimmy T comes in from the left side, thumbing 75, right, in relief. Sure. And all of a sudden, everybody's early on this guy. And your coaches are like, wait, 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 wait. A player that ha can control their stride and can control their rhythm to different speeds will have success off both of those guys.
What's your, what's your thoughts on the toe tap? Style. Okay. So uh, then, the, so the, just to take inventory, the leg yeah. kick, the toe tap, and the way the stride that you like, which sort of, if I, if if I'm envisioning correctly here, it's it's what Bellinger does. He he comes, and you taught me this years ago to fall forward, right? Fall forward or or half that distance. Yeah. Okay. I, I would say you know you look at Arenado, that's normal. You look at you know ninety percent of players would be kind of just. Well, maybe 80%, you know, kind of in between. I'm trying to think. Trout Trout has kind of – he has a leg kick, but it's not like a, that knee comes up above his hip, you know, or sure. to his hip like a Donaldson does. Um, but Jose Bautista, too, big leg kick. Big leg kick, right? And sure. he's not a big guy, right? He's kind of the, the norm, you know. the He was like the original poster boy, you know, yeah. years ago with the leg kick because yeah. it, it transformed his career. Justin Turner would be another one of those guys. So, yeah, I mean, mine would be – yeah, leg kick to me is how high does the front foot come off the ground? That would be leg kick. Stride means the foot moves forward. So then you'd yeah. balance out what is the x-axis versus the y-axis of the stride. And that has to do – that's individual to the player for me. And and the weight shift is a, is a technique, just to be clear about that, correct, or, a tech, or an absolute. Is that correct? Uh, the weight shift is an absolute. So whether you stick your foot down early or don't yeah. stride at all, Okay, mm-hmm. so my online academy, uh, where people send me video, you know, I can kind of train players remotely. What I have drills in there for a stride and a no stride. Sure. And so, like, if you think of Pujols, uh, 2010, 2008, whatever, Pujols mm-hmm. just lifted his front heel, which put about 90% of the weight on his back foot. Then, as he went to drop his heel, his hips and his weight slid forward. That's the move that most people do in the air. He just happened to do it with his toe on the ground. Big deal. But his hips were still sliding forward. Mm-hmm. Then when his heel plant, boom, he, he rotated. Then all of a sudden, Pools got older, right? Yep. He got to like 34, 35, and he's like, I better start striding. And now all of a sudden, you see him the last like three or four years, he takes a stride more because he's just trying to build a little bit more energy. So yeah. it's how you how you build in that weight shift. Is it a... High leg kick, is it a long leg kick? Is it a no leg kick? You still have to get your weight into your back foot, and then you have to shift that weight into your front heel when you go to swing. So to simplify, every movement that happens before, I would say almost the front heel plant, like ball of the front foot hitting the ground with the strider and the no stride, the front heel on its way down, everything before that for me is considered style. One another point I hate um, about when people say about hitting, uh, just like when you they used to say, "Well, get your foot down early." Well, no, dummy, you can't do that because then your right. momentum's going to be gone. Right. But they talk now a lot about, and I see this a lot, and and people who on Twitter and Instagram who mention things like this, I uh, immediately mute. It's the, they talk about a hip hinge, which a hip hinge to me, and you and I have talked about this. Uh, off the record about how a hip hinge is if you do ever do a good morning bend in the gym that's a hip hinge you're pushing your hips back and you're using your lower back rounding it out and getting your core of your lower back stronger there really is no hip hinge so to speak in in hitting it's more of coiling now is coiling an absolute a technique deal or is coiling more of style because now we're hearing a lot about how well Aaron Judge coils and Bellinger coils and this guy coils and, and Johnny Rocket coils. Uh, okay, maybe. 
But is that is that an absolute, or is it more of the the weight shift and getting that momentum and the ground force going? Yeah, yeah, Jim, you talked about it earlier. People create their own languages. I yeah. don't understand a lot of the language that um, a lot of the hitting people, social media hitting people, are talking about. Because um, I think a lot of times when they talk about hip hinge, they're talking about how much like our hips maybe tilt inward when we hit to get to right. low pitches or like, and, and that's not an actual term for hip. What a hip hinge is. Um, okay, so I mean, I'm, I might, I might not, you know, have gone to enough science classes to to you know, confuse people, which I think is what is happening in hitting today. Um, <laughs> a coil, you can call it. So my dad used to call it counter-rotating. Okay, okay, okay. so counter-rotation. Um, it, it all stemmed, w- what that was from was Ted Williams. Like, Ted Williams had a knee hitch, mm-hmm. and as he brought his knee in during his stride, his front shoulder would come down and in, and his front hip would cock. Okay, so you can call that pronation of the, you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. But really what I'm doing is we're setting that up with the stride. So as we stride and as we're landing, that front shoulder has to be lower than the back shoulder. Right. And it has to be closer to the plate than our back shoulder. Okay. So we're turning that in. Everybody has different flexibilities. Okay. So if you look at, I remember my dad saying, Stan Musial, I don't know how he turned so much with his upper body. And Ken Griffey Jr., I don't know how much he, he can do that, especially against left-handed pitchers, and you would know this, right? right. Like, yeah. it's hard to stretch your neck that far to see a release point from a left-handed pitcher. Well, we found these pictures of Musial and Griffey, and it was like their neck was double-jointed. Like, they could turn sure. – they were almost looking over the middle of their back. So wow. it all starts with your eyes. you got to have, if you can, your left eye and your right eye, regardless of what – you know, your front eye or your back eye. They have to be as flat or equidistant to the ball as possible. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that's how we see, right? We're looking at something far away and we want to see both eyes are equidistant. If you start to turn that, well, all of a sudden now one of our eyes has to work a little bit harder in space. So if you turn your shoulders too much, now all of a sudden you lose your back eye. Okay. So you have to figure that out, you know, and you were a kid once and I remember walking through the store with my mom and I would get in front of a mirror and I would take my stance, right. And Mm -hmm. take a stride and look where my shoulder was. And um, now I do the same thing with my golf swing, which doesn't get any better, but it's another story. Um, But that move, that counter rotation, that's what I look for. So when somebody plants their front foot, I have to make sure that their shoulder's in the right position. I'm not going to tell you the degrees that I look for or anything like that and give away all my secrets, but I will tell you that that front shoulder has to be lower than the back shoulder and it has to be in towards the plate. If it is not, then what happened is their upper body started early. Their back elbow dropped too early, which brought their back shoulder down and their hands down. So the biggest issue with young players, um, and I would put this into if you're a player under 13 years old, this would be you, and I'm talking about above 80 to 85% of them, they will start their upper body below before their front foot lands and if you watch big leaguers watch how quiet their upper body is the last three or four inches as their foot's touching the ground their upper body's not doing much okay and it's definitely not dropping and starting to rotate so uh, next week's episode we're going to talk about torque and and where is that gone because it's not really taught anymore it seems like or at least not focused on enough uh, for high level hitters but getting to the torque portion of the swing so we've done the legs we've talked about the stride and the stance and uh now 
you mentioned the front shoulder being lower than the back. By the way, to your point about in, you know, when you're a kid in the mirror looking at, at your swing, and I'm doing that. People can't see what you know us talking and what we're doing, but I'm doing that right now as you're talking. You know, looking yeah. at my shoulder, and, and um, I'm kind of getting that feel, which is obviously yeah. so important as well. But um, part of torque, as you've explained, is getting that front shoulder lower than the back shoulder. How else, uh, lower body-wise, with your legs, could you also get into that torque position? First of all, too, and I want to make this point, which is very important, that when you stride and you that front heel lands and you're getting into the torque, and you've taught me this, the your feet le- spread apart should be the length of your bat, correct? Yeah, pretty close. So yeah. to break it down even further, because, you know, so- for softball players, they swing really long bats. Mm-hmm. Um, at a young age. So I might have like a five, seven softball girl swinging like a 33 inch bat or a 34 inch bat. So yeah. it doesn't really, you know, that for softball, it's not as important, but yes, for baseball, for the most part, um, if you take your inseam and you add two to four inches, that's about where your base should be. Okay. Somewhere in there. So at a minimum, it's the exact same as your inseam. At a maximum, it'd be about four inches more than your inseam. So for me, I had a 34 inch inseam. So I had to be at least, yeah, I was about 36 inches or so. And I swung like a 35 inch bat, 34 and a half inch bat. So it usually fits in there pretty good. And and when you're talking about torque, what's the best way for a young hitter or any hitter for that matter? I keep saying young, but uh, to get into, I had a way and you taught me this way, um, Mm -hmm. heel heel drop, heel pop, Mm -hmm. front drops, back pops. And Mm -hmm. now you're sort of creating that separation. What other ways are there for you to get into torque? So the, you know, and torque now I, you know, people obviously come up with their own stuff. So that was my dad's term, which you know, I always kind of use torque. The definition of torque is two forces working in opposite directions on an object, right? What's the object, your body or your spine? What are the forces your upper body's going back as your lower body's opening? Okay. So that's kind of the, the, where the, where the word came from. People call it separation. Now you're separating your torsos. Uh, people, I, I think they try to separate sometimes their arms and sh- their arms and hands from their hips too much. And that, uh, doesn't, doesn't play. That one doesn't work. That creates a lot of problems, but yes, as that front shoulder is down and in, what we have to make sure of is that our front heel plants and our hips start to open. Okay. So that's where the K vest comes in 40 motion, the mice swing golf that we use. We can actually measure that actual angle you know, three-dimensionally, which is really cool. We, could, we couldn't do that years ago. So uh, torque is, is, is a very powerful move that is used in all sports. I mean, hockey players, uh, pitchers, get in, they get huge amounts of separation there. Uh, golfers get huge amounts of separation. Baseball players will be 30 to, 30 to 42, maybe. Yeah, Griffey, sure. Griffey was above 40, Donaldson sometimes. Miguel Cabrera sometimes gets above 40 degrees of separation there. Um, but it's not it's not an end all. So I had a player that you know, we we obviously had our technology on, and we had the K vest, and the, or we had the mice swing on. I think at this time, and we had the blast, and his his torque angle was essentially like uh, eighteen degrees. And I'm like, well, that sucks, right? And that's what I told him, made him feel real bad about himself. That's all I get results. <laughs> there you go. And I'm like, okay, so we 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 did a little drill where we were striding and keeping our shoulders back you know, as we planted our hips are opening. So we're starting to get that feel. And then I'm like, okay, let's take this into a swing now. Let's get, so I want you to go feel, feel, swing, feel, feel, swing. So he feels, it feels, and then he goes into a swing and all of a sudden 
you know, he starts getting more torque. So we went from 18 degrees to 30, which is huge improvement, right? And as he did that, his bat speed went up like a half a mile an hour, okay? So it's not like we're getting, you know, if we go from 25 degrees to 35 degrees, we're not going to hit the ball 50 feet further, okay? What it allows us to do, that torque position, yes, it it creates whip. If you force that move and you stress that move too much, what it creates is spinning off. So you're swinging harder mm-hmm. and your barrel is in and out of the zone really quick. So what does sure. that do? Well, it looks really good off a tee, okay, because your numbers look good. Of course. And yeah. maybe your, ex- your exit velocity looks good on the hit tracks, but it doesn't play. So you, you can overteach this move, too, where they spin out of it. The reason for me it's extra important along with the, you know, the energy aspect is it creates adjustability. If we plant our front foot and our hands are still back, we can get fooled, you know, sure. our, our hips are going, but my hands are still back and I can fight off that slider, right? There's that Boba shit where he, you know, had a 15 pitch at bat or something like that, which I'm like, whatever the one Oh pitch, you should have hit out of the park, but we can talk about that later. You know, he wouldn't have had to work so hard. He could have just routed the bases on the second pitch you saw, but <laughs> excuse me, you see that adjustability with him. Because he does such a good job keeping his hands and shoulders back, even though his hips are opening. I loved how you were talking about KVEST and, and some of the new data that you're using. And we are going to do a future episode, a full episode, on just data in, in general in hitting um, and how it's used properly and sometimes improperly in today's game. So let's keep keep it rolling here. Um, we're getting we're at the point of torque now and the hands just a quick point about the the hands where they are at the loaded position uh, i used to sometimes cast back past my back, my back shoulder and then bring them back and you said that's a okay move but you have to be careful to do that but uh, more so in the load when the front shoulder is, is down and back shoulders up the hands should be even with that back shoulder and the knob this is kind of i guess simple stuff but the knob should be pointed to the catcher's feet correct yeah, pretty close. Somewhere behind your back foot, for sure, is where the knob should be pointing. Yeah. Um, but not everybody does that. Pete Alonzo doesn't do that. And um, there's another player. I don't know why I'm blanking it. Oh, Acuna. Acuna doesn't do that. So both sure. of those guys, very vertical bats at heel plant. Mm-hmm. Um, the majority of guys are definitely pointed back that way. But again, I go back more shoulders. Where are the shoulders in that position? Um, as far as the hands, yeah, usually behind the behind the armpit has to be behind the armpit, Mm -hmm. you know, behind the shoulder is okay. A lot of guys will load that front arm real straight when, when they're striding, but then as they land, it'll start to bend. And that's, that's just fine too. Um, The catastrophic issue is the arm is bent and you go to rotate and you straighten it as you're rotating. So what happens is your hands get lagged or drug kind of behind your shoulders a little bit. Um, And then that creates all kinds of barrel and wrist issues. Well, I, I think from what you're talking about, to give people more of a visual, Raul Abanya sometimes used to do that, where his front arm, Michael Young too, the front arm would sort of, sure. um, sort of, uh, what's uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Pre-extend. Uh, I, yeah, pre-extend. Or bar. Bar, bar, perfect. Yeah, yeah. P- both perfect terms. Uh, they would pre-extend uh, when they're getting in the hitting zone on playing with the pitch. Yeah, a lot of guys do, and that's... You know, it's, uh, I really barred, like <laughs> mine yeah. was real straight, which was why uh, my career ended sooner than I had liked. But uh, a lot of guys do, there, there can be some straightening is it's what happens. It's when does it straighten? 
I guess that's the best way to put it. Like Albert Pujols, most of the time had a pretty straight arm as he went to rotate, meaning sure. his his left bicep would be pretty close to his left pec. You know, it yeah. kind of stretched that. Um, but then on inside pitches, sometimes he would keep it really bent. So a lot of times, what I look for when uh, when I'm doing advanced scouting stuff is, can they do both? Like mm-hmm. if the pitch is outside, that arm's going to straighten out sooner. You got to cover yeah. it. But can they do that? And then all of a sudden, the pitch is inside. Do they have the ability to keep it in and not chicken wing it, but keep the hands closer to the body while still extending? If I can see a player do both of those, that's a guy that he knows how to hit. We're going to talk about the hitch next week as it relates to bat quickness and and bat speed. Um, because Ted Williams had a hitch, Barry Bonds mm-hmm. had a hitch, sure. Manny, Ramir- Manny Ramirez had a hitch. I even asked you once. I said, "Should I experiment with a hitch?" Yeah. Unfortunately, mentally, all it was all on me. I just couldn't seem to get over that barrier of how I used to load. But uh, nevertheless, we're going to talk about that next week. But let's really quickly touch on the um, the bat lag and getting the bat. You you know, you in your lessons, a lot of times when you're starting to integrate kids and students. Uh, hitters, whatever, uh, at high levels mm-hmm. into your, your program, you tell them, hey, keep that bat resting on that back shoulder and it helps you stay connected. So let's mm-hmm. talk a little bit now about uh, bat lag. And we know the difference. We touched on it last week with bat drag, how that elbow is in front mm-hmm. of the knob. But uh, the uh, bat getting into bat lag. Uh, let's talk mm-hmm. a little bit uh, and expand on that. Yeah, so, so again, drag is drag is bad. Bat lag is and can be very good. The opposite of lag would be casting. Okay. okay. So if you think about that, casting the bat would be the opposite of bat lag. If you think about golfers, you know, think about Sergio Garcia or somebody like that. He lags the club really far behind him. And what that means is the angle of his front wrist, if we're talking about a right-handed hitter, that angle is very sharp between the left forearm and the, the club or the left forearm and the bat. Okay, so we're talking like 90 degrees or less there. As that wrist opens, that releases the the barrel away from the body. So a lag position is how far forward can we get the knob of the bat? And and, and by the way, very controversial here nowadays. Like a lot of people just want you to turn the knob and and turn the barrel to kind of whip and accelerate the barrel early, um, which is fine. Like you can teach whatever you you want to teach, but um, yeah. Uh, that, that's not something I teach. Okay. So right. I don't, I don't want that barrel to whip away from my body too soon. I want that barrel to stay close to my body and my back shoulder. And then I want to store that energy as long as I can, and then release the barrel later. This is why we hit the ball harder out in front of our body, because that barrel is releasing later and storing more energy and then releasing it. So it's very hard to kind of explain, um, without showing pictures of it, but, um, Essentially, when you get the knob out in front facing the pitcher and the barrel is, is par- or the bat is parallel to the inside batter's box line um, and you release the wrist at that time and you release the knob to turn left at that time, the knob only moves about, I don't know, three or four inches sure. and the barrel moves about four feet. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine that amount of energy and whip that is created. That's what people talk about, whip. So look at one of your Blue Jay boys. Um I don't know why I just blanked on his name. He's the greatest. That guy's going to win a batting title. Why can't I ever think of his name? Vlad Jr. Vlad Jr. Jr. Okay, that that, that dude, the best. Like, 
he's like the whip master and the lag master. So if you want to go look at videos, look at his BP videos. Sure. That's why it looks yeah. so effortless. Effortless. He just pulls the knob out in front and releases the barrel. I guarantee you, he could hit with no legs and hit balls over the fence and BP like no problem. Wow. Just by because... using his hands. That's how amazing he's able to like whip a bat through. Um, but but he would be the big example. So when you have that much energy, and it's like a golfer that's lagging the bat, it's the same thing. The the bottom hand only moves a couple inches, and the barrel has a big arc coming through. It's building momentum and energy. So I am a guy that is big on bat lag. I, if you don't have, you can be small, have it, and hit the ball a long ways. You can be big, big and not have it and still be okay. Um, yeah. But it, it is kind of the last piece of the kinetic chain, um, that barrel kind of whipping through after we set up the lag. So during this quarantine with no baseball, I'm, I'm watching a lot of different things. But the one thing I'm watching on YouTube happens to be one of the best American League Championship series that I've ever seen in my lifetime. I'm sure you maybe you've seen better, you're a little bit older than me. But the 2003 American League Championship series between the Red Sox and the Yankees. And I watched in Game 2, I just finished Game 2 the other night, and I'm on Game 3 now. And in Game 2, what got the Yankees started was Nick Johnson's home run to right. He hit it into the second deck. It would have been out at any ballpark, even at the old and new Yankee Stadium. And the pitch was over the inner half. And the replay, they stopped the replay right at the point of contact. And it looked like at the point of contact, Jake, he got jammed. But in reality, he didn't. And then mm-hmm. I realized it clicked in my head. That's because he had tremendous bat lag on that mm-hmm. swing. And he released the barrel at a perfect time. Now, to give people more context, this is something you teach on an outside pitch. Obviously, the, the hips rotate a certain way. Mm-hmm. Um, they rotate and your belly is pointed your belly button pointed towards the left side of the infield, right down the middle, pitch right down the middle, straight up, and then, of course, mm-hmm. to right. It's to the right side. Uh, pitch on for the other half. To the, to, for a lefty, correct. Uh, yeah, thank you. Um, an opposite way for, for a righty. and But for the barrel on the outside pitch, correct me if I'm wrong, but you release it a little bit early uh, from the bat lag to create that whip on the outside pitch, letting it get deep. Then you then you lag a little bit more on the pitch right down the middle, and you see this with Vlad. That was a great example you used. Mm-hmm. And then you see it on the inside pitch where you release the barrel the latest, but you clear the hips, obviously, um, the earliest. I know that was very sounded jumbled no, but, and, and very and again, confusing. That's but, why your, your power is more to the pull side, right? Because yes. you're lagging longer and you're rotating more, right? You're creating, yeah. your length of stroke is, is essentially longer. The barrel's gaining momentum a little bit further. Um, but yeah, and yes, and we can, we'll have an episode where we talk about the you know, difference between inside pitches and outside pitches and, mm-hmm. um, you know, why letting it get too deep might not be the greatest idea, but when we release the barrel, will help. So that's a big part of my training because, what happens is I was taught, let that outside pitch get like almost, if you're looking from the side, to the middle of my body. Mm-hmm. And I could do that because I had bat control and I could hit a line drive to right field, but I didn't have a lot of power to right field. And the more I got into actually studying and coaching and training and teaching, I watch all these guys. Uh, my favorite opposite field guy would be uh, Miguel Cabrera. All of a sudden, he hits balls on the outside part of the plate. He hits them at his front heel, like out by his front foot. And I'm like, how does he do that? And that ball's really far away. He's not, he's not even reaching for it. 
Okay. And so there was a certain method to his madness. Well, that if you can do that, now all of a sudden, instead of having a three foot timing window between inside and outside, now you have a foot and a half timing window. And all of a sudden your timing's better. So yeah. um, that'll be, that's like a whole segment right there. Well, and the, timing is so important obviously it's one of the i think it's one of the more overlooked but one of the most important factors of hitting is having that innate timing (laughs) you can look really good in the hotel lobby as my dad used to say right um you could have the greatest swing in the world if you're if you don't have the ability to to adjust and to let the ball get into where your swing plane connects with the ball and i've had a i've had a bunch of those players um you know they're just they're just limiting their careers. So we're going to talk uh, about getting on plane and the attack angle versus launch angle in a whole separate episode. That should be a, a really fun episode. Mm-hmm. Um, but those, I mean, launch angle is the big buzzword nowadays, obviously. But <laughs> And we're going to talk about that in a future episode. But once you get on plane with the pitch, you're at your power V position. The bat is at a at a vertical angle where you're on plane, you're not swinging level to the ground, but you're swinging level to the baseball. And then you get into extension and your power V and that's also helps finish off that whipping action. Correct. And that's where our, our swing will, you know, from, from lag, you go from lag to contact contact. You're going to extend into your power V. So if your power V is good, both arms extended and it should be like that 90% of the time, 95% of the time, unless you know, you let the ball travel too much on a middle end pitch, you'll get tied up. But if your normal swing, you don't get to a, a, a long extension point or power V, then you're hurting yourself. Uh, that's where technique ends. So what I tell players is if you get to a good power V position, both arms extended, your top hand hasn't rolled over your, your bottom hand yet. If you're a right-handed hitter, your right hand hasn't rolled over your left hand yet. Um, then good things probably happen. But that's where technique ends. You could have a one-hand follow-through from there. You can have a two-hand follow-through. You can let go of the bat and throw it in the stands. Like, I don't really care what you do after that. That's that's your style. That's how you're right. built. That, that's your your DNA. I had a conversation with Charlie Lau Jr. years ago, maybe, I don't know, 12 years ago, about the importance of letting go of the top hand. And that was his big, big hang-up. Like, you know, he was like, ah, oh, you can't. You can't hold on with two hands. Otherwise, you're going to ground out. You're going to roll over everything. And I totally saw his point of view. And I'm like, yeah, I, I get it. And, I mean, here's linear hitting. You know, he's the son of the linear hitting guy, right? I mean, this right. Is, and he was the one still, like, linear. And he's like, no, man, you got to rotate. You can't swing down. You know, you're going to swing up. But you're, you're going to rotate. I'm like, dude, we're speaking the same language here. What are we? He's like, oh, you got you to let go with one hand. So I was like, well. Whatever, whatever you you say, that's cool. Like if you know, you can. So I do drills where guys let go with one hand. Some people I don't let go with one hand because they let go too soon. But if they get to a full power V position, both hands on the bat, and they let go, that's totally fine. So you're more you you prefer you prefer the Ted Williams style of following through with both hand, both hands. That's what I you do me. Um, yeah. just because it for for a lot of players it helps them finish rotating. Mm-hmm. Um, and it helps them extend. So a lot of times, the, I have players I see all the time that send me videos to the online academy, and they'll let go with one hand, but their top hand, if they're a right-handed hitter, their right arm never extends all the way. Mm-hmm. So it's like they just kind of cut it off and let go, and that's like the worst thing. So with them, I usually always have them go. But if I have players that have a one-hand follow-through, I, I usually don't change. I, well, I don't. I will never change their follow-through 
if they get to a proper power V position. Power V positions, and we'll talk about this with different contact points and all that, but power V positions will be in different spots too. On a lower pitch, usually players will extend a little lower. On a higher pitch, it'll look a little higher. It doesn't mean they swing up or down differently, but you know, on a lower pitch, as they're extending through that lower pitch, it'll they'll usually extend have to extend a little lower. If it's an outside pitch, they'll usually extend more to the opposite field. If it's an inside pitch, that power V will point more towards the pull side. So um, I always look at the direction of that power V, make sure it's dynamic based on pitch location. So before we wrap up, I, I, I'm a list guy, as you know, and I made a yep. list here while you were talking about the difference uh, differences and the different aspects of style and technique. And on the technique side, I have more than style. On the style side, stance, stride, meaning leg kick or toe tap, uh-huh. whatever, whichever you prefer, which Bryce Harper, by the way, was going to the uh, toe tap this year from the leg kick that he's used in um, the previous years in his career and the follow through as well. And we've seen guys some guys use both follow-throughs correct at the major league level i mean some of them sometimes they'll do full swing yeah. and then other times they'll let go right no you're exactly right i'm trying to think there's somebody that <clears throat> i always use as a, an example for that too but yes they will and so that's my style list and on the other side on the technique side i have weight shift i have slash i guess slash coiling uh mm-hmm. torque bat leg on plane with the pitch at a certain degree and point of contact and extension power V. Yep. That's a pretty good solid list just to, for, for everybody listening, kind of separate in their heads what we're talking about when we speak of mechanics, which is style and which is technique. Correct. And then the easy way is anything that happens after heel plant or front foot plant, meaning right before heel plant to your power V, everything in there is mechanical and it should be very simple between if you look at Bryce Harper and you look at um, Babe Ruth or you look at Ted Williams or you look at Manny Ramirez. Every, those absolutes, you know, that there's not going to be bat drag in there. There's not going to be casting in there. There's not going to be any kind of wrist roll in there. Um, those are technique issues. Um, and like I said before, if your swing is on plane with the pitch for three three to four feet on good pitches to hit, you know, thigh to, thigh to belt or so then your technique is probably pretty darn good. And that's what I look at. I think a lot of people overcoach. And if I see a player that gets that hits certain marks, but maybe they have a little bat drag or maybe they have a little casting, but their barrel is doing the right thing, the barrel doesn't lie, just like ball flight doesn't lie. Sure, you know? sure, yeah. Um, I usually won't, you know, too much information for a player is a very bad thing. You know, we yeah. might focus on, hey, let's do some bottom hand drills to keep you from casting a little bit or, whatever, but I'm not going to harp it because that will set that player back, you know, in, from a comfort standpoint and they'll start to struggle and then they won't like you if they struggle. Well, this episode was the gift that kept on giving because <laughs> I've, I've written down, I've written down a ton of little things that we can turn into topics for future episodes, which we will do. But coming up in future episodes in the coming weeks, we're going to talk about data interpretation, the mental approach. We're going to do a whole episode on mental approach. You mentioned earlier contact points, difference between hitting that inside pitch, outside pitch, and a pitch right down the middle at the major league level, not missing that pitch that you're supposed to hit out of the park or at least hit to the gaps. And we're also going to do for Jake's softball clients uh, a softball swing episode 
and a breakdown, the similarities and differences between a softball and baseball swing. But next week, Jake, we're going to be talking about torque. Where's all the torque gone? We use different terms now for it, hinge and coil and, and you know, Johnny Rocket and all this, you know, stuff that's <laughs> out there now. We're going to dive more into just the torque part of the swing and how imperative that is and how maybe it's been lost a little bit over the years. Sounds great. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Those are fantastic topics that I'll make sure I uh, try to keep the oxygen uh, flowing so we don't get too too far over our uh, allotted time limit. Very good. All right. So uh, be sure to follow Jake, by the way, uh, on Twitter and Instagram at Epstein Hitting and myself, too, uh, on Twitter and Instagram at Jim Tara. And again, next week, we'll be talking about torque, the torque in the swing. Subscribe to the podcast. New episodes come out every Monday at 9 a.m. Plus like our YouTube page as well, The Lab Epstein Hitting and uh, full episodes and clips from previous shows, including this one, will be up there as well. Jake, any last words? It was good. Good stuff. Time just kind of flew by, didn't it? Time was good. No, I I, uh, I enjoyed it again. Getting back into uh, you know talking hitting uh, with someone that's very knowledgeable as well and makes good notes. And uh, I, I hope that our our listeners out there are, are benefiting and yes. finding some usefulness that they can apply to their swings or their kids' swings or their students' swings. So be sure to sh- share this information um, out there to your friends and colleagues. We'd most appreciate it. All right, Jake, you stay safe, and our audience listening, you stay safe as well, and we will talk to you next week.